lay people watch us and are like, that looks cool, but whatever. Is that how freestylers look at people playing with the whiz ring? Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman and with me is Ryan Young. So today we're going to do a new segment called Valid or Not Valid. But before we do, we have a little bit of a rankings update. So Mia Culpa here. We were hoping to have a rankings update in June, but Ryan and I have been super busy and we haven't gotten around to it. And we're still working out some of the kinks with getting results via the FPA. So we're working on that, but no matter what, we'll have a rankings update pre-Worlds, which is around the corner, and we'll try to get as many tournaments as possible in before that time. So if you have tournament results that either come from tournaments since the last update in December 2022, or you have tournaments that weren't in the original rankings please send them in. Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong. I keep getting this wrong, but the email is freestyle underscore ranking at googlegroups.com. And ranking is singular, not plural. Just double check if you get a, a bounce back on that email to make sure it comes through. But if you send it there, we'll make sure it's part of the, the update. And if there's anything else like a name change or whatever you think is wrong with the old system, just let us know. You can also honestly write at clockerconnor.gmail.com. We'll also get it and we'll try to fix that. And one little PSA about that, please try to make sure everyone's name is spelled correctly when you send in the ranking. I know that a lot of European players have multiple names and aliases and spellings, and that makes it really hard to get the rankings done. Um, but that's also another thing to look out for. If you look at the rankings and you feel like you're missing something, check to see if there's another name for you out there and we can combine those. Ryan, anything else I missed on that? No, I think that was it. Also, eventually there'll be a tool where people can just put in ranking results themselves. Do you have anything else to add about that, Ryan? Or is that a down the road that's way situation? Far down the road. I may have to retire before I build that. Okay. And yet you put me into the wilderness. I've been trying to put in rankings result, ranking results. I think ChatGPT will do this. for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was just... building tools for years in advance and all of a sudden they were being used the next week. <laughs> the, the, well, I was just trying to get us, get us in the deadline. <laughs> the problem is this, it's obviously in beta and I constantly break things because I don't really know how to program and you don't have the bandwidth to fix the things I break right now. But we're going to get it done before Worlds. And it's eventually like the judging system. I think it's going to be a lot more user friendly as we go through iterations of it. But it's pretty cool. Um, and I'm excited about it. Because I think one day you could have a tool where you could see how your ranking would change based on how results would happen, which would be cool. And then another thing we've been thinking about and you worked on at some point, but apparently the server space or something required is very expensive but there's a cool way to do kind of advanced stats on prior ranking results right that's probably the next project because it has to do with the fpa website and getting all the data in one place someone needs to do that work and it probably should be me but i haven't had the energy to do it 
All right, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. So, okay, before we get to valid or not valid, Ryan, I think you had a a mountain bike update. Okay, yeah. So from a previous episode, I mentioned that I had a list of skills that I wanted to learn. And after I completed all of them, I would buy a mountain bike as a reward. And so yesterday I got my mountain bike. It came in the mail and it's very pretty. It's not, I've like never ridden a mountain bike with full suspension before, but it's awesome. Have, did you already put it together and ride it and everything? Yeah. It took me maybe 40 minutes to put it together. And then I spent like another two hours setting up all the fine tuning things that have like, it has suspension, which is very finicky. And it's probably like learning how to glue your nails on the first time. Like it'll be easy in the future. But the first time, like, what does this knob do? And like, where does the air go? And all of these things. But And you're... At the point where you don't take it into a bike shop or anything, you can do everything on your own. Yeah, I have the tools. That's kind of like if I need something done right away, I'll take it into the bike shop. But if it's I don't need it right away, I'll look it up online and buy the tool. And is it fun for you to set it up? I feel like that's something I always like when you get a new whatever and you have to set it up for the first time. I find something very zen and exciting about it it's like starting a new school year where you think everything this year is going to be better because i'm starting i think fresh. more about <laughs> it feels more like a lego set you like buy a lego set and you put it together it's fun yeah. but it's yeah it's very specific because i like maintaining bikes but i don't like maintaining my house like why does doing laundry feel like a pain but cleaning my chain is a pleasure it's all about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. I think you <laughs> are intrinsically motivated to ride your bikes and build your bikes, but you are extrinsically motivated to clean your house. Yep. That must we, be it. We could do a whole podcast on that. I mean, that goes to your core principle that the it's, I don't think it's, it's a core principle rooted in empiricism, but your view that enthusiasm is the best indicator for success at any particular endeavor. (laughs) Um, that's really cool. I'm surprised you learned the skills you outlined so quickly because when you were describing them, like when the thing that you described that was sort of a wheelie, that sounds like it would take longer than it's been since we last talked. And your analogy to the delay makes me think you learned pretty difficult skills pretty quickly. So what happened was I used a different, I basically cheated. So I was like, that manual attempt was good enough. Like I can't, it's not like I can hold a center delay forever until the spin runs out. So mm-hmm. I can delay it for two seconds, the equivalent of that. Got it. Well, it's, it reminds me a little bit. So we normally in Durham, the summer's my off season from freestyle because all the Duke students go home. But Will and Brendan are both here this summer, which is pretty cool because that's sort of my all-star squad and we're having some pretty incredible jams. But we've also got a new player who I met first when we were disc golfing a lot and then kind of re-met when I started playing a lot of Ultimate. And now he's ready to start freestyling. And he came out, his name's Ken. He came out with Drew Price, who's a local frisbee legend in durham who told me he has been playing frisbee on the duke east campus quad since 1979 which the new yorkers will get a big kick out of because everything in new york in history happened in 1979 but i believe (laughs) drew when he says it was in 1979 but ken came out to get back to why i thought of it just now and he's really enthusiastic he played with us for about two and a half hours on friday 
And I could tell that he was just so ready to be doing all these other things, but he was still trying to get the delay down. And I kept saying, no, 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 that's all you need to do today. All you need to do is just work <laughs> on this thing. That's really hard. And it's not like other things that you've done where you can be trying 10 different new things at once. I mean, you will not be able to even attempt them until you get this one thing down. But it's almost like it flies in the face of the instant gratification world we live in in 2023 to tell people, hey, you're not going to get this today or tomorrow or maybe even next month, but just focus on this and it will come eventually. Mm -hmm. Do you also, this happened with the mountain bike skills, but the things that were, I thought were hard were actually easy and the things that looked easy were hard. Isn't that such a freestyle thing? Where that happens to me the most is when I make a study tape. And a lot of times when I make a study tape, you know, I just go to practice and try to come up with new ideas on the spot. But every now and then, especially I haven't made one for a while, I'll kind of accumulate a list of things that I want to try to hit. And a lot of times, like I've talked about before, when I'm doing a study tape, I'm learning those moves that I'm doing in real time. And that's part of the process. And so I'll come in with 20 moves that I want to hit, most of which I've never hit before. And I'll have in my head an idea of which ones are going to take me a while to hit and which ones aren't. And it's I'm always wrong because a lot of times what I do <laughs> is I try to plan the order that I do them based on how long I think it will take me. I always go in thinking, OK, I want to hit these five first because I think they're going to be easy and I'm going to knock them out. And then I'll have I'll feel like, OK, I've already made a study tape. I've got my five moves and everything else that's going to be hard <laughs> is gravy. And then the first move, I'm like, oh, no, it's been an hour. I'm drenched in sweat. <laughs> My muscles have lost all their power for the rest of the day, and I haven't done one move. And that's where I often do. I think of it as like the study tape trilogy. This doesn't happen as much anymore, but it happened a lot at the beginning. I go out on a Friday to make a study tape, and I come home, and I'm like, I didn't make it. <laughs> I didn't really hit <laughs> any of the moves or enough of them to justify doing anything with it. And then I go out the next day, and then often it would be the third day that I could finally hit all the moves in a way that I wanted to. Or then sometimes there's the, I would make one or two and I would see what I liked and didn't like about that and then come back for the third one. So there are, there are a lot of unreleased prototype study tapes out there where I was trying to figure something out before it made the real thing. There's always a trade-off there too, but just by day three, usually my legs are shot. And so I'm a little bit exhausted, <laughs> but at least by that point, I'll have the moves down a lot better. But it's funny you say that. Like, I think about that a lot. Like I'm always wrong about what I think is going to be easy. And it's obviously very satisfying, though, the reverse of that, when you think something's going to be really hard and you hit it the first time. You're like, okay, great. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Done. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. That was the main reason <laughs> I could buy the mountain bike so soon. So things at the end of the list, I was like, wait, I could. It was like the third try. And I was like, well, oh, I trust well, that you too. Other, other people, I would be thinking, oh, I don't know if you really learned the moves. I think you just wanted to buy a mountain bike, but I trust you. I think you put in the right effort before buying the mountain bike. Okay. So valid or not valid. You said you have written down a bunch of things about this. I don't know what they are, but first I should describe valid or not valid as a principle. Also, if you hear some strange yawning noises in the back, those are my my two dogs who are with me at this moment. Um, so valid versus not valid. If you are a non-native English speaker, valid means legitimate or correct or good or right. And invalid is illegitimate, wrong, whatever. And we use, now I want to like actually look it up to make sure I'm not giving a, a really bad definition of valid. 
we uh, played Scrabble recently with Margaret's family, and I used to play a lot of words with friends. So I had all my two and three letter words that no one ever uses in real life. And everyone got so mad at me. They made a new rule, which is I had to define every word that I played so that I couldn't <laughs> abuse Scrabble words. Um, yeah, this is interesting. So the definition of valid that pops up on Google is having a sound basis in logic or fact, reasonable or cogent, or legally or officially acceptable. So I kind of already f- freestyle modified that definition, but I think you can think of it in this context as right or wrong. And at least for me, the valid concept was strongly emphasized in New York. So in New York, we often say like that's valid or that's not valid when you do a move. And when I was an early freestyler, I got in a pretty heated fight with some Pacific Northwesterners about having a concept of valid or not valid. They were very upset with Daniel and me because they viewed viewed it as an assault on freestyle. Freestyle is whatever you want. It's loosey goosey. It's about creativity and imagination. How can you have this concept of valid or not valid in freestyle? And I take their point. I, I know what they mean. I wish I was having that fight now that I've been playing for 15 years and I'm an adult <laughs> versus when I got stomped on when I was, you know, 18 years old and a brand new player. But I think there's a lot of value in the valid versus not valid because for me and Daniel it was a big teaching tool. So Dougie, so I associate the most with valid or not valid. And a lot of times when I would try a new move, I would kind of look at him and he would smile and he would say valid or not valid. <laughs> and that would be really helpful about knowing whether it was a move I wanted to keep pursuing. And it kind of goes to the thing I talk about a lot, which is you often can't really see or picture how what you're doing looks. So having someone on the outside who's seen you learn something in real time, say valid or not valid, is pretty helpful. The only cost to it, I think, is sometimes something starts out not valid, but once it reaches a certain point and you perfect it, it becomes very valid. So sometimes you have to kind of work through something's invalidity to get to the point where it's valid. And I think maybe that's all I have to say about it. I do. I guess one other thing is that it was always in a lighthearted sense. Like there was never, you never said that's not valid with a frown on your face. We're always smiling, laughing, <laughs> like valid, not valid. It's meant to be in good spirit. Um, so hopefully... We can keep that. I'll also add that Dougie has a couple not valid, valid views that I strongly disagree with. For instance, he thinks the piccolo catch, which is the two-handed behind the head catch, is invalid, <laughs> which is, I think, a I'm glad sco- I didn't put that on the list. I think <laughs> I that is a about it. scorching hot take. <laughs> I, like, I can't even... I thought he was joking the first 10 times he said it, but that that's a Dougie Fresh just preference. What can you do about it? <laughs> And then he has some really negative feelings towards the behind the back osis, anything, catch, pull, whatever. <laughs> I think he's coming around on it. I think he's right that especially when I was first working on it, it's not my move, but like when I first started trying to do it, he, he's probably right that it looked very fake and bad. But I think as I've gotten better at it, he's a little more tolerant of it. But that's a that's a instance by instance judgment. Every time I do a BOSIS is what I call it. I look at him and he'll uh, more often than not these days, begrudgingly go, all right, all right, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. But I know in his head, he's very skeptical of it. Okay. Was that a good introduction? Did I miss anything to valid or not valid? No, that was good.
Do you have an idea about what the game is? Like, what am I supposed to do something in particular, or am I just supposed to give you my judgment? I think give you for judgment, and we'll talk about your judgment. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to start with a theme, but then we'll branch out from there. Okay, the first one is re-revving using a dub brush. Invalid. (laughs) Okay. I agree 100%. I'm going to start with an easy one. Yeah, so... I know we've talked about this before in the context of the judging system because there was a push over the last few years, I think even before the new judging system, to penalize re-revving. And I think some of that was because re-revving became much more common, I think. I don't know. Maybe it happened a lot in the 80s for all I know. And maybe one reason it became more common is it was a big part of battling. Like when people were battling (laughs) initially... Everyone wanted to have two minute combos. And so they were using a lot of re-revving to keep the moves going. And I think it's invalid for a bunch of reasons. One, I don't think it's very exciting when you re-rev it. Two, there's no reason not to catch it and throw it. Like the reason you re-rev generally is because you want more spin to keep doing a move. But I'd rather you stop doing that move, catch it, and move to the next move. Like you're not, you're not like slowing time down and getting more opportunity to freestyle by re-revving. You can just catch it and throw it and keep going. <laughs> Um, but what do you think? Am I missing any part of it? Uh, I was going to say like we're playing a game and so we're simplifying it to like a yes or no, but it's way more complex than that. And I was wondering maybe for each one, I'll give the counter devil's advocate take. Okay. I had a couple counters, but you start. Okay. The first one would be, let's say someone does an MTA. So they throw it up. It's in the air for 15 seconds and it comes down and you do the Pavel dub rush and you hit it as hard as you can. So it just stops, stuns it. And then you go. Yeah, I think that is valid. <laughs> that that <laughs> yeah. was my first counterexample was even if it wasn't an the MTA helps a lot in that situation because it mm-hmm. and that goes to the idea of intentionality, which we've talked about a lot before. If when you do things very intentionally, it makes it much more likely to be valid. And I think a lot of times I don't want to get too philosophic or semiotic about it. I know that when people are re-revving, they are using their brain actively to tell their hands to hit the disc to re-rev it. So it's intentional (laughs) in one sense, but usually they're not planning on re-revving unless I think they're, unless they're a terrible decision maker. Cause I don't know why you'd ever plan to re-rev it. Um, there's, there's exceptions, um, some of which we can get to. So like intentionality helps and the MTA one hit re-rev is kind of cool there. I also think even without the MTA, the one hit power Pavel re-rev is kind of sick. I think it's pretty cool. And I think it's, it's depl- displaying a certain skill that isn't necessarily present in a re-rev. And it doesn't have the repetition of multiple re-revs that makes re-revving particularly egregious. Yeah, it keeps the flow. Like I'd say even I every now and then re-rev it with for effect or like with intent. I wouldn't do it in a routine. I think that would be a waste of space, but sometimes in a jam I'll do it. Like I think once one context I'll do it, but you can't do this as often as is available or else you'd be doing it all the time. But sometimes if I make a Matt Gothier dumpster fire save and like it starts out almost like a joke of, can I save this third world wobbly desk? And then you kind of save it. And then you just re-rev it 
over like you over re-rev it. You're no longer re-revving it to add enough spin to keep going. You're re-revving it just for the sake of re-rev. Maybe or you almost go like a Daniel route where you're you're gonna re-rev it 20 times, not <laughs> three, four, five. And every time you're trying to hit it as hard as you can. Like you're almost trying to break the disc. That I think can also be kind of cool. And it fits within the counter bash re-rev, the right-handed counter bash, hyper bash, I think people call it. Obviously, you can do it left-handed too, but it's usually counter right-handed. And that kind of re-rev gets a little more play, I think, than the right-handed clock under Mm -hmm. re-rev. And I think that's because that one can and often does feel more intentional. Like if you think about Fabio or Larry doing the brush backs, like bash, tip, bash, tip, bash, tip. The introduction of the tip there breaks up the re-revving, so that helps a lot too. Um, so I don't know, like intentionality can get you something valid out of re-revving, but just the ninety-eight percent of the time people re-rev, I think it's completely boosh, and I don't recommend it. And people <laughs> should try really hard to get that out of their game. Okay, corollary: What do you think about the pizza re-rev, where it's like the two-handed, the disc is like flying, and you like clamp it with two hands and like re-spin it kind of like you're learning when you learn how to throw for the first time that re-rev so that's one that i can handle if it's a one-off which it usually is it's very rare to see people do it multiple times in a row it also seems like something that's often more within the context of a co-op like i see that in a lot of italian routines especially like they because i think it comes from clay so they, I was being careful there because I didn't want to be like, the pizza re-rev is very common in Italy. No, I don't mean that. Like, I think, <laughs> I, I think it's from clay. Like, that's where I think I'm making that connection. It was obviously like a Hall of Fame Italian freestyler. But I see it like, I'll do a behind the back set up flat and the other person will re-rev it. But here's my take on this. Shouldn't you just change the spin every time you do a pizza re-rev? Because it's not really any harder. It's probably a little harder, but like... Whether you keep the spin or change the spin, it's a pretty similar kind of re-rev. So you might as well change the spin and now you're totally valid. Like you're I think it increases its validity for sure if you change the spin. A lot. I mean, I love and I totally stole this from him and I need to do it more. I love when Graf has a disc that's spinning nine 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 clock and then he re-revs it with one pizza re-rev to nine 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 counter. And the disc, <laughs> you don't even perceive that anything happened. There's no wobble. There's no change. There might not even be a loud sound. It's just, it's spinning one way, max spin, and then it's spinning the other way, max spin. And I think that's pretty cool. Okay. Okay. Moving on. The twirl save. So like the you're on the brush run and the disc is out of spin and it's butterflying. So you like turn your hand like invert and you like flick it around you just like put your finger in the rim with your skin and you just like twirl it around to fix it the jake the jake twirl yeah. the jake twirl what did jake has a name for that he's named that after some other player i think but i can't remember who it was he's never told me the name of it maybe i'm wrong about this he's gonna be here soon so not like today soon but in the next week or two so i'll ask him i almost think or i also might have heard dougie call like the hal erickson or something like that might have been something that hal <laughs> was known for doing I make some better. I think in general, I'm pro twirl in a way that a lot of freestylers aren't. I think what Jan Solerson does is incredible and we should be celebrating that. But I do think two things. One, like twirling needs to be in a sweet middle. If you're not that skilled at it, like me, it's pretty lame. 
And if you way overdo it, it's too much and it's no longer freestyle in the way that I know it. But there's this happy middle spot that I actually think Jan, for the most part, for me, is in this happy middle spot. Maybe sometimes he does more twirling than I would like. But generally, I think he he's in the sweet spot for me where he's doing very traditional freestyle. that's very sick. And then he has twirling at an incredibly high level that isn't, in my mind, overly distracting from like the traditional freestyle. There's a ton to unpack about that. And I don't want to get <laughs> in too much of a rabbit hole. And there's lots of people who have lots of different opinions about that. So twirling as a general principle, I'm kind of okay with if it's done in a really cool way, but it's so easy for it to be lame. And I kind of think the Jake twirl brush run save, it's like, it's maybe just on the side of valid. Like it's desperately trying to fall <laughs> to invalid. I tell I'm probably him it's a point one in the jam every time he does it. Okay, that makes me better because I'm probably <laughs> like I'm probably lacking confidence because it's Jake and I just generally hold everything Jake does in the highest esteem. And I think he does it more or less intentionally, or like it's it is in it is a save. And it's usually not his fault that it just needs to be saved. So there's something kind of cool about it, but it just it's the kind of thing that a lay person might ask, oh, is that okay to do? And if they're asking that, it probably means it's a little bit uncool. Yep. My take is in the jam, you should use the riskier move that could drop it or more traditional valid move that could drop it, but it's not the twirl. But in competition, not dropping is every or is like way bigger deal. So like do the twirl save. I say it's valid in competition. So I don't really do the twirl save, so I don't know exactly what the right context to do it in it, do it is. But there's a part of me that wonders, you know how sometimes your best brush kick, brush or whatever kind save is to change the spin? I feel like it's one of those situations <laughs> yeah. where it's like the time you need to twirl save it, it's a really weird circumstance where something that's kind of weirdly harder is actually your best choice. But yeah, I don't know enough about it to really say. That's a good one, though. I, I don't. I wonder if a lot of people aren't even gonna know what we're talking about because it's so rare to see it. Like I, it was almost unfair of me to bring up Jan because Jan doesn't do anything like the twirl save. But I was just thinking, kind of twirling in general. <laughs> yep. Okay. Next one. The disc unintentionally hits the ground and is rolling, and someone kicks it up. It hits the ground unintentionally. Like it's dropped, but it's rolling along the ground and someone like runs and like kicks it off the ground. Does the kick bring the disc back into play in a way that's good or no? You can. How oh. about the attempt is the attempt. <laughs> so you can go both. What? Give one for each. <sighs> I'm going to give a complicated answer. <laughs> I think I think that's not valid in a travel jam, a guest jam, a special occasion jam, but it can be valid in your home jam if the vibes are right. And so I think there are definitely <laughs> times in Durham, I think because we have a bunch of super young players and we're all more so them are running around like maniacs full of life and energy at 18, 19 years old, that it's more common to over attempt to save the disc. Cause I think that's kind of, part of what we're getting at here is how at what point do you really just have to give up and realize the disc is hit the ground and it's over 
And when is it okay to try to Lazarus revive, <laughs> bring the disc back to life? And it's a spice that should be used very lightly and with a good sense of humor. Otherwise, it's very frustrating. But uh, it's also one that if I were making a public service announcement, I would say don't do it because you're probably doing it in a way that's frustrating to other people. Because <laughs> it's often is very frustrating when people over try to <laughs> save the disc. But I definitely feel like in Durham, we do it sometimes in a way that I find fun and not overly annoying. But too often okay. it's the disc is rolling towards someone else and they don't want to pick it up and throw it. So they just kick it as hard as they can, like into your <laughs> chest. I'm, I'm kind of turning around on it. It is pretty invalid. I was trying to defend it, but I'm kind of coming around. Okay. Here's a counter example. It takes time. The disc is rolling to you. It takes time just to like pick it up and throw it again. If you can kick it up to yourself and use the same amount of time, I think that's a valid case because it's usually the kicking it up and having it fall down again, that's the the bad case that everyone dislikes. But if you can use, if you can do it quickly enough that the fail, like if you try and kick it up and you fail, you can throw it in the same amount of time. That this is you tricky because normally valid, <laughs> invalid is something you can apply categorically. It's just that is wrong in <laughs> principle and in theory. This one's a tricky one because it's kind of like, did it work or not? If it worked, yeah. it's valid. If it didn't work, it's invalid. But that makes it tricky to assign into one of the categories because I don't know if I want to incentivize it because if it's something that's cool, I actually think about this a lot. And This kind of goes to when people are trying really hard moves that are cool, but they only work like one out of a thousand times. I don't know if I want to incentivize that because it's like, yeah, that's super <laughs> cool and valid when it works, but the 10 times a day or right, at the watch you miss it is invalid, which I have plenty of moves like that. So I'm sure Will is sitting at home right now being like, yeah, but James, how many times have I watched you do X, Y, and Z? But uh, that's a <laughs> tricky a one. Once a jam move. Once if a jam. You, if you miss it, you can't do it for the rest of the day. Or it's also, I think, valid when you're doing the real ping pong co-op save where everyone's just like smacking the disc to each other, but it hasn't really hit the ground yet. And then when it does hit <laughs> yeah. the ground, I feel like you can kick it up to try one last time because you're already in the just junkyard. The, yeah. Like we're all in the junkyard. We're all just swimming around in garbage. So one more tin pail kick is not going to be a problem. I think the length of time it's been on the ground matters. Like if it's less than one second, it's always valid to kick it up. Okay. Okay. All right. I like that one. That was an interesting one. Okay. Next one. Uh, this happens mostly in competition, but uh, there's an error and the disc stops spinning for some reason and you grab it and then throw it up for the catch to complete the combo you were trying to do. <sighs> Invalid. It's, <laughs> it's so, I don't know. I feel like I'd have to do a statistical analysis of routines, but I feel like, it's so rarely a good idea. I will say into the new system, it might be advantageous. It's probably yeah. a good idea because you get the extra phrase and that and helps you. you. <laughs> I almost feel like we should legislate that out of the judging system and be like, please combine those because it's it's just silly to do it that way. Um, I don't know. I'll give a real extreme example, which I think I've done the, given this example before in another context on the podcast, and I might be wrong. One of the most impressive things I ever saw in a freestyle routine, and I'm not being hyperbolic about this, it was a routine with the Karlsruhe player who doesn't play very much anymore, 
His name was Daniel. And I'm, I don't remember his last name very well. It started with a W. And even if I did remember it, I wouldn't say it correctly. So someone can write us in and I can announce this person's name. But he was a great player. I He's going to be one of those, if the sport was ever bigger and people were actually analyzing legacies, he would be like, what about this really great Karlsruhe freestyler that was incredible for like five years and didn't disappear and no one talks about him anymore. But in Paganello, like either 2012 or 2014, he was in Frisbee Hell. Like the routine was in shattered pieces on the floor and those pieces had been stepped on into other little pieces and then spit on by a hundred people walking by. Like the routine was going as badly as a routine could go. And he was getting really frustrated and he like dropped it. Then he picks the disc up, throws it like 25 feet in the air, third world. It hits some kind of scarecrow. Like in my mind now, it was like a double spinning scarecrow, third world. And he catches it so hard and so clean. It sounded like a gunshot going off in the tent. And people just <laughs> went completely crazy. And the rest of the routine was smooth sailing. Like it was like the only time I was like, wow, that like completely turned the routine around and won me over. And I thought that was absolutely incredible, super valid. And I've never forgotten it to this day. And I've never tried it myself and I don't know if I'd recommend it for anyone else because the much more likely outcome was that he was going to drop that too and that was going to be a problem. I just don't know. I feel like it just never works. I feel like everyone always drops it after and then they have two drops or whatever catch they do is really lame anyways. But I understand the instinct. The times where I probably do it or I'm at least tempted to do it is that I'm really... I'm probably in a complex routine where it really matters who has the disc when, and I'm trying to hit the music in some way, but otherwise I almost never do it. Like actually one example where I know I did it was in 2015. I was playing with Zanardi and we were in the semifinals in Karlsruhe coincidence. And there was like a really big music cue. We were playing to this Beethoven song and there was a drop I don't know exactly what happened, but I really was supposed to hit a double on the music and I threw it up to like a quarter second delay, set it and hit the double on the music. And I don't know if that was a good idea or not. It worked and we probably got more points on it. And that was probably better in every way in the sense that it would have been way worse to just blow through that giant music cue and just be standing there looking at each other. But... I just don't like it so much. I really don't like the self throw of any kind to fix a mistake. Hmm. I agree with you on the timing. Like that's the way to get the most out of it is if you need to fill time, like what else are you going to do during that? Well, I always think if look kind of what I was getting at, if, if there's a music cue that you don't have time to get to in any other way and you want to throw it up to yourself to just catch it, on the music cue and your there's also maybe a skill threshold here. Like if you're good enough that you know you can hit whatever silly catch you're gonna do a hundred percent of the time and it's a real catch and not like an under the leg, then it's fine. So I'm okay with it because you like if I'm doing it, like I know I'm gonna hit whatever self throw <laughs> catch I'm gonna, I'm going to hit that. That's not gonna be a mistake. And Two, you're only doing it because I need to hit this music cue that's in 1.5 seconds and there's no other way to hit it. And I need to have the disc right away after this music cue to throw it. Like that set of circumstances, which is not uncommon, but it's still like 5% of the time that you drop it, then I'm okay with it. 
But most of the time, if the problem is killing time, then I always say just throw it to your partner and improvise. Like if you actually have time, that's always a better solution. And I feel like I always tell my partners, like if something goes wrong, just throw it to me. And I don't mean that in an <laughs> ego way of like, I'm so good, but just throw it to me and fix it. I'm like, just don't worry about what happened. Don't try to noodle to get the time. Throw it to me with high spin, simple throw, and we will figure out in real time as we do every time we jam, how to get to the next section and get the <laughs> right person having the desk. And maybe another wrinkle to throw in, I think it's more common to do this self throw catch and a multi-disc routine. Cause that's where it's especially important that the right people have the right disc at the right time. And it's a lot harder to work out in a jam improv mid routine improvisation. Oh, like just throw me spin and we'll figure out who needs to have it. That's when like <laughs> yeah. everyone just starts throwing discs to each other and they like hit each other in the ear. That's when it goes disastrously. But most of the time I just say, just throw me spin and I'll make sure that either you catch it if you need to catch it for the next thing or I'll catch it if it's my thing. Okay. Okay. I like that take. Okay. All right. Next one. A flawed, but you look on the same side that the disc is on. The fake flawed, the fake, the fake catching. Um, I think I'm going to talk about a player who does this because I think he's talked about it in a way that I found somewhat compelling. So... Adrian, the English player, is famous for doing, I want a better word than fake, but like that's what I think people call it, like a fake, fake flawed, fake triple fake, you can even fake scarecrow. And it's fake because you're over rotating in such a way that you can basically see the disc that you're catching and it's no longer restricted because you've turned so far that it's your arms like not really behind your body anymore. Is that a good explanation? Yep. Yeah. And I mean, you said it simply, which is that you're looking the same side that you're catching. So like normally if you catch a flawed, if you're catching a flawed with a right hand, your head is looking forward and your right hand is going behind your legs to catch it. This would be if, if instead of your head looking forward, your head turned 180 degrees <laughs> over your left shoulder to your right so that it was in the same line and plane as your right hand. Hard to explain, but if you saw it, you would know it right away. You know it when you see it. And it is a difference of degree, not kind. So whether something is fake or not fake, it's a spectrum. And I have this a lot when I'm teaching new players, especially something like flawed or triple fake, where I'm like, okay, you're technically doing a flawed, but I always say like you're over-rotating, like rotate less and use flexibility and timing to catch it. And that's also where I often tell people like, treat this like a blind catch, don't over-rotate and find it. And that's how you get it quote unquote, right. But the question is really, is a fake catch valid? And I think most <laughs> people are coming strongly on the side. If it's not valid, don't do it. It's not cool. But someone was talking about Adrian doing this and he had a very valid defense. <laughs> he said, it's harder. I'm doing it on purpose. I think it's cool. And I don't like the aesthetics as much. So for me, I'm probably going to come down with saying this is invalid, but I do agree that on a lot of ways it is harder to do it this way, depending on what it is. Um, and he seems to be able to do it for any catch. Like I've seen him do it with Fleming guidance, with flawed, with triple fake. Um, it might be one of those things that it's only harder because we don't train to do it that way. And maybe <laughs> it would be easier if we learned it that way. But I kind of dug just, you know, like I said about, whatever it was before intentionality. I can imagine a way that is valid, but 
I think most people think it's it's invalid. So I'm going to come down an invalid, but I'm going to give a special dispensation for Adrian because he owns it and he wants to do it. And if you if you own what you do, that's always valid for me. I agree. It falls into the chosis category. Is that what you're saying? I was thinking about that. I almost brought that up, but it is chosis esque. But I, maybe I'm the Adrian of Chosis because I think Chosis <laughs> is super valid and super cool. But that's another one. So it's almost like just how I said when you're doing, when you're learning flawed, for instance, and you're kind of getting too much on the fake side, it's a difference of degree, not kind. But at least with the true normal flawed, most of the spectrum is right. And you have to really try to get into the fake side of things. And it usually means you're not understanding the move and that's why you're doing a fake. Choices is like, it's a huge spectrum and only a tiny portion of that spectrum is valid. Like, like it has to be <laughs> absolutely picture perfect and it looks like a really cool restricted catch. But any other part of the spectrum, it looks completely messed up and like you made a horrible, horrible mistake. <laughs> Which is actually kind of move that I think is very cool and isn't explored more. Like what are all the moves out there that... 99% of the time are super lame, but if you get it just right, it's super cool. <laughs> Chosis. Yeah. Right now, that's a move group of one and it has Chosis in it. Okay. It'll be your next study tape theme. Yeah. I've thought, like I have thought about toys. that, honestly. Like, <laughs> I want to, the thesis is what I really want to explore the, the scarecrow, <laughs> like a whole thesis themed study tape. I don't think it would, I don't think it would do very well. Maybe with the right camera angle, but okay. Next one. Using a ring for competition. Uh, invalid. <laughs> I will, I will allow people to do it who are new players or low skilled players who due to the burdens of having to play for such a long time, want to use a whiz ring to, not feel like they're slamming their head against the wall trying to come up with stuff to do for three minutes. So I think that problem is a lot better now that routines are shorter than they used to be. But especially in the five minute co-op routine days, I was sympathetic when, you know, a few overallers came out and wanted to whiz ring for a while. But there's something very gimmicky about it. And maybe because we haven't developed it or maybe it's intrinsic to the tool itself, but Whiz rings are very indie focused. Like they, even when we're having whiz ring jams, they're very often my least favorite kind of co-op, which is I do a few moves, pass it to you. You do a few moves, pass it to me. I don't know why. Like again, that may be just how we like don't play with them very much and we haven't really figured out how to cope with them right. But I, every time I've seen a whiz ring in a routine, it's I'm going to the brush it. 10 times in a row and then maybe do some <laughs> other stuff and we're just killing time here. I mean, it's like the re-revving times a hundred. Yep. I agree. Am I missing anything? I was trying to think of a counter example, but the only thing I could come up with is when you dig the rim out, kind of like doing a ridge delay and you can like turn it over that way. But even it's like the coolness of that is not there for some reason, even though it's pretty hard to do. This is going to sound really short-sighted in 2050 when the prize pool for the Wizarding World Championship is $20 trillion. But I think that was cool the first time someone did it. And then 
now it's just a gimmick. It's like, okay, cool. You can <laughs> you push out. You can do a rim delay with the wizarding. Very nice. I've seen it. I'm ready to move on. Maybe there's a world where someone could really expect, like I of all people don't want to be the one to see a wizarding because I learned, like, I think my big leap in freestyle was when I was living in the Czech Republic and ironically, it was not because I was traveling around Europe playing with everybody. It's because I was living alone in this small town and I was playing by myself constantly. And I played mostly with the Wizarding and all my first study tapes, my first 15 study tapes, none of which are available except for maybe like two or three were with the Wizarding. So I'm very pro Wizarding. You're not very pro Wizarding, which you should talk about. <laughs> like, I love the Wizarding. I think it's a great learning tool. I think there's so much you could do with it that we don't do with it now. But... I can't think of a single, uh, there's no, the wizarding routine. We don't talk about like, Oh, I remember when (laughs) they had that amazing (laughs) wizarding routine. It was so cool. And even the best forms of wizarding, like what I've seen Fabio do. And like, even if I watch myself doing the highest level wizarding stuff that I can do, I'm like, it's not that cool. Like it's kind of, (laughs) it is a practice tool. You know, it's like being really good at wiffle ball. It's like, okay, it's, that's cool, but it's not really the real thing. Although my last thing on this, and we, sh- I like just for my own, what's the word? Nostalgia and ego. And like, this would be the most egotistical everything I'd do on this podcast. I want to bring Fabio Sana on this podcast to talk about probably like the top five greatest jam I ever had, which is me and him 2015 Carlsruhe, which is the theme of today for some reason. Wizarding only jam for 45 minutes. And it was kind of one of those awkward times where. You know, Fabio at that time, like the difference between us was acute. So like he's one of the greatest players of all time. <laughs> and I was still up and coming and not necessarily that good. So I had that moment where I was like, I think this is really magical. But I'm kind of worried that he's just <laughs> going to be like, oh, hum, this is I, this is what I do every single day. Like, this is not a big deal. And it's kind of like, we've just caught the last 20 minutes. Like, this is really cool. Like, it was a lot of like wizarding speed flow. And then when I went up to him afterwards to be like, Hey, like I thought that was magical. He grabbed me and Fabio was very nice and effusive. So maybe he says this to everybody, but he was like, no, like that was special. And then the only other validation I got that that was actually a special moment is I've had this a couple of times. But I remember one time Roger Meyer came up to me and was like, you know, I remember in 2015 watching you and Fabio for 45 minutes with the whiz ring. And it was just incredible. So I'm pro whiz ring. Fabio Sana is the best I've ever seen with the whiz ring, but I think Wiz Rings and the freestyle Frisbee tournament context, <laughs> invalid. But invalid. you should counter me real quick because I know you're against Wiz Rings relative to me anyways. Okay. What do you think about this? Do you know? Okay, so we're doing hard things in the jam and lay people watch us and are like, that looks cool, but whatever. Is that how freestylers look at people playing with the Wiz Ring? It's like that one level more of that well first i want to you brought up something else i think is interesting about wizarding one thing i like about the wizarding it's one of the only thing it one of the only things is that there's like 10 other discs that i use but i've talked about how i'm generally uncomfortable practicing in public with the disc i feel much more comfortable practicing with the wizarding in public and i think it's because people perceive it as a game much more quickly they see it as (laughs) oh like look at that fun that looks fun like that looks cool like that looks interesting so it has a lot of value in that and I don't feel embarrassed to do it. 
I mean, I've talked about this before. I'll try to be quick about it. But it, to me, it's all about context. People lack context when they view freestyle. So they see you do a cool move and they're like, oh, cool. What are they going to do next? What am I going to do next? I'm probably going to drop it. And then I drop it and they go, oh, like, that's lame. <laughs> and they move on. But when they see the wizarding, unlike the Frisbee, they don't need context because it's apparent on the face of the act that it's a game that's for fun. And there's not an expectation that I think I'm really cool and I'm showing off like people see it and they're like that guy is playing a game and having a good time and they get it right away. Whereas that like doesn't always happen with freestyle. They think like, Oh, that guy thinks he's so cool, but he, he's terrible. I don't know. That's just how I perceive <laughs> it in my broken brain. But that part I love about the wizarding. So it was funny to me that you pitched it as that because it would be kind of ironic that wizardings play really well to the lay audience. Cause they look like a fun game, but to freestylers, it looks <laughs> not so cool because we're used to it. So I don't know. Like, I just, there's the limitations of the wizarding I find frustrating. And again, I think some of it is skill-based. Like I think we're much more tolerant with the brushing with the wizarding in a way that we aren't in regular freestyle. Like if everyone who was playing with a wizarding was doing consecutive, restricted, brushing, rolling, kicking runs, I would probably think it's cooler. The Wizarding is also slower, right? I think I'm right about that. It is. Yep. So, especially if you're like me and you listen to podcasts on three times speed and you're so, <laughs> your, your brain and dopamine circuit is so completely broken that you just constantly need a deluge of information, then watching a Wizarding sometimes is not as exciting. <laughs> it's I should have said it. It's also lighter for those weight blind people. I mean, we could do a whole episode on the Wizarding. I do. I one thing I like about the Wizarding is I think it, whatever mile per hour wind there is now, the Wizarding is as if there was five more miles per hour. So like, it's kind of a useful tool to learn higher wind conditions. So, for instance, if you're playing with five mile per hour wind with a disc, the disc is still going to be pretty vertical but the wizarding can already be fairly horizontal. So you can get more practice in that kind of flatter disc setting. But you've really broken me here because I have so many <laughs> emotions about wizardings, both positive and negative. And I know we should do a whole episode because I have unrelated tangent. Yeah, my, my brain is going in a thousand directions right now about wizardings. And I know there's some purists out there that are the opposite of purists, like wizarding allies out there that I'm I feel like I'm offending but they don't realize that I'm their biggest ally so <laughs> I, I want more time at another podcast to talk about that okay okay moving on to the next one we're oh we're like over halfway okay to the list okay the next one is Godus. I've come around it's totally valid in the New York era in the early era where I was playing Godus was considered invalid and I actually I don't remember if the people involved are not afraid to identify themselves in the battle that me and Daniel got destroyed in. I have a feeling Godus was the subject of the conversation of what was valid or invalid. And I think Dan and I were trained that Godus is invalid, but I think we've all come around on it. Godus is totally valid. I'm in on it. Brendan's been doing a lot of Godus lately. Daniel has a great Godus. I think it's... I think it's cool. I wouldn't make it my signature catch. It's probably more like an exotic spice, 
But usually when I see it, I'm kind of <laughs> like, yeah, I like that. That was cool. Do you think it's similar to Chosis where it's on a spectrum and there's a band of the spectrum where it's valid and there's a band that is not valid? I was trying to think about that. The problem is I couldn't identify the parameters that make it valid because I feel like there are people that find different ways to do it. So for instance, I feel like Daniel does two different ways that I think are valid. I think he does it. I think this is right. But even if it's not that principles, I kind of agree with. I think one cool way is you catch it really hard and you hold it and you're like holding that awkward position mm -hmm. and then you kind of get out of it in some stylistic way. The other one that I, I think, think if the, yeah. Okay. Ahead, what's no, your ahead. second one? No, no, go ahead. Go okay. ahead. My first parameter is if the leg is above 90 degrees, the up one valid. Yeah. And then sometimes Daniel just kind of like squeezes it out, just like grabs it. And it's already like before he's even finished corralling it into his fingers, he's already ripping it out. And it's like a very fast aggro. It's almost like <laughs> the difference between a leg over and an under the leg. Like, there's a way of doing the goddess that makes it more like a leg over catch. Not it's not, that's still not, now I just mixed up my metaphors, but it's just this kind of, it's all about the movement of your hand and your leg moving at a certain tempo and getting out of it versus oh, the flexibility and the stability of holding the catch. Like there's two different ways to make it cool, but I do, I know what you're getting at, which is that a lot of times it's uncool. And I think where it's uncool is when, someone couldn't learn any other guidance and this has become their <laughs> only guidance and it's just sort of bring that up half-hearted yeah. and you know especially if you're bent over 90 degrees and you're practically catching it on the ground then it's not very cool mm -hmm. it's like would you say guidus can be caught in all situations but godus has a smaller it's like if you could catch there's like a separation you know like catch guidus wherever but if you catch Godus when you could have caught Guidus instead, then it becomes invalid. Like, does that cross the line? I mean, I think maybe we're on to something in this whole podcast, which is differentiating moves between how, e I don't know if easy is right or how easy or how often it is to do right or like in the best possible way. And so like Guidus, I feel like we need to come up with a name right now, but like Guidus has like a high flex in that it can look cool <laughs> most of the time no matter how you do it whereas other moves probably like chosis has a really low flex where it almost always looks bad and sometimes looks good because i do think about this with my new players and sometimes they're working on a move where i'm like this or like olivia is another good example i think olivia is one of my favorite catches and it took me a really long time to get there but i really like how i olivia now but for the first eight years of my career i hated how i Olivia and it just like it looked bad it looked bad it looked bad and then you cross this threshold and it looks really cool so I want to brainstorm at some point of vocabulary to describe this I spectrum. like the word flex I, I could start like spreading flex, that around but it could I don't know if it would be confusing it's a little confusing because yeah. it has a physical meaning too people can write us in with ideas for it but I've never it's for all the time I've spent thinking about freestyle I've never spent that much time on this particular concept. And I feel like I've needed this concept to explain something to someone before and didn't have it and in one and now, because there's a lot of value in learning lots of moves that have high flex. <laughs> and yep, I agree. You got to be, and you have to be more thoughtful when you learn low flex moves because 
you can so easily learn them wrong and then you'll have that habit and you'll never be able to do it in a way that's aesthetically pleasing. Okay. Yeah. Godus was a good okay. one. Okay. All right. Next one. A chest roll that doesn't touch the chest. So it just like skips over from one arm to the other arm and goes back out. Totally invalid. <laughs> if you get a flight path that approximates the correct flight path, then I think it's still invalid, but that means you're a really good chest roller. Um, that's a no one that's going to make sense to no one, but like every now and then I see someone <laughs> like Larry and like he kind of messes up the roll, but because he's just so good at rolling, like it still flies in like that parabola of a chest roll, even though it doesn't hit his arm, just like he di- directed it so well with the first touch of his hand that it was still good. But no, I mean, chest roll is so lame <laughs> when it doesn't roll across your body. I wish we talked about it more because I get how hard it is and I really made it my mission to get people to roll it better. And I do think more people roll it better now than in the past, at least as a proportion. Like it was so common when we started playing that like most people's roles just weren't that good. Mm-hmm. But now people really emphasize the contact. But it looks like awkward to me when it bounces across your chest or completely misses. It's, I mean, if it completely misses, it's like, why are your hands even up? It just looks like you're <laughs> modeling a crucifix while the disc is going. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> I think I separated between a role for show and a role for utility. And the utility role can have some missing pieces as long as the utility part works. But I'd almost rather you just brush it at that point. You know, it's like you're brushing it anyways. Why do you got to throw your arms up pretending like they're involved? <laughs> I mean, it depends. I was sort of treating it like a question where it really only is a one point roll versus a bouncy roll. I don't know. I have, they all look bad. I mean, rolls, rolls are kind of low flex, but in a different sense, they're really hard to do correctly. And you think so? I think they're high flex because they look good to a layman, even if they're poorly executed. That's interesting. I kind of get that, but I'm not a layman and I'm just <laughs> enraged, especially when people do consecutive roles badly. I just, why, why even do it at that point? <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a purist. I'm a snob about roles, I guess. And I have lots of problems with my roles in lots of ways. So don't get me wrong. I'm not acting like I'm the model for everything role related, but just conceptually, if I were just like there's art historians that aren't artists, if I was a freestyle historian who didn't freestyle, I would still be a role snob. I just, there's something about (laughs) it that I really don't like when it's wrong. What's the opposite of snob? It's like, I'm a role inclusivist. I'm a a role every man. It's a gender term. Unfortunately, I'll think of, I feel like there is like a natural antonym, but I just can't think of it right now to a snob. Okay. Okay. Next one. The accidental scarecrow brush. Valid. Valid. Yeah. I think it's valid. It's pretty cool (laughs) when you just brush it and it works and it's cool. But scarecrow brush is also kind of like what I talked earlier about those situations where the best thing to do is a spin change brush because it doesn't make any sense that this thing that's normally very hard would be your best solution. But I d- you see it. I think everyone sees it. Like you say all the time, so the only option was to change it there. 
And there's just something really weird where that happens. I think the same thing with Scarecrow Brushers. Every now and then, the disc is just in this spot where I'm like, the only thing I can do right now is just swing as hard as I can with a Scarecrow Brush. And a surprising amount of the time, it works. And you just think, okay, (laughs) that was my only option. It worked, and it was very cool. It's also the other one where either you're going for a Scarecrow and it becomes a brush, or there's other versions of it, but most versions of the accidental Scarecrow brush, I think, are totally valid. Yep. I agree. So uh, you do it in competition. What do you think about asking the person after the routine? Was that intentional? Is that like, I feel like that's part of freestyle culture. You always ask it and they always say yes. <laughs> well, I always tell people you always say yes. <sighs> that's, that, that's a whole nother conversation. I feel like maybe we even talked about it before, but uh, I don't know. There's almost another problem, which is, if someone has to ask the question, you've already lost the battle in some way, if that makes sense. I see. I don't think you, the person asking isn't asking, they're asking rhetorically. Is That's how I encounter that question. Because I feel like, Most I feel like I've had a few times with Daniel in the last few years where he intentionally <laughs> did something in a routine that I thought was accidental and he was defending it to me. And on the one hand, that's an interesting problem because I've had that problem too in the sense where I'm building something and I think, oh, people are going to think this is a mistake. And sometimes I convince myself that I should still do it. And I always, I never, I've never done this because I think it would be sort of inappropriate. But I always wonder like, can you go to the judges beforehand and be like, hey, I'm going to do this thing in my routine. It's intentional. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know. I don't want to say it's inappropriate. I think it's fine. If someone did that, I wouldn't be like, oh, I can't believe they did that. But I just personally don't really want to do that and have feelings that I can't necessarily explain in real time about why I don't like that. But at the same time, most of the time when I'm making that decision, I eventually reach the conclusion that if people are not going to know that this was intentional, then it's not good enough. It's not ready. <laughs> it's not a good decision because it should look like I tend to want to look like I'm in control and I like freestyle when it looks like the person has mastery over it. I get that it's very cool when you save things and when you're a master improviser, but I think the true master improvisers look like they're in control even when they're improvising. Like that's what I strive to do. So this is maybe a personal preference and I'm not going to act like I'm objectively right about this. So I think it's something that's subjective, but I want to look like I have intention when I'm freestyling. And if I don't meet that goal, even if it's a rhetorical question, there's something about what I did that made them want to ask the question rhetorically. (laughs) That means it was kind of a failure. Okay. But I'm probably in the minority there. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm right about it. Okay. All right. Next one. Valid or invalid. Carling. Remind me what carling is. It's when you benign the discs, you're like balancing in the palm of your hand or on your fingertip and you lose control a little bit and you use your thumb to stabilize it or one of the fingers in like a way to kind of cheat it. Completely invalid. The only exception I'll make for that is that some people are so good at it that it's essentially imperceptible and probably imperceptible to a lay audience. And I will allow it in a performative context that's non-competitive. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So I, I, I can imagine situations where it's like, okay, no one's going to know you did that and it will make your performance better to a lay audience. And so I will accept it. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I might also be in the minority in this one because everything I just said should justify doing it in all situations. Like it's a, <laughs> if it's imperceptible to most people and it allows you to continue the combo without a drop or other nonsense, then I mean, I guess it's better. But maybe my reason for always being against it is it's a dangerous drug. That's a slippery slope where you'll rely on it more and more and more. And it could become a barrier to becoming a better player. But that's my shoehorned justification for something that's a little bit hard to explain why I think it's so problematic. Yeah. You know Don't how, let it like, be a crutch. There's like <laughs> there's lots of different versions of this, but when you like personality attributes that everyone is on a spectrum of, and there's different versions of it, but I feel like I've seen as a personality trait like justice like i feel like i'm very high on the justice spectrum i'm like everything has to be fair and right <laughs> like i can't stand things that are unfair and i think that's why i have an unreasonable and probably unjustifiable disdain for things like carling because to me there's some unfair you made a mistake you broke your combo you're cheating to fix it i'm making this argument a little more extreme than i actually hold it in my head but i think I have this core sense of fairness that Carling breaks for me, especially in the competitive context that I don't like about it. This is something that shed Freddie, Freddie and I share, I think, and why we, even though I don't agree with him on plenty of things in freestyle, but one thing I think he and I have always agreed with that we probably have an irrational obsession with fairness. Do you give it a deduction when you're judging? I, first of all, I don't know if I've ever seen it while I was judging. It's pretty <laughs> rare. I mean, like, who does it? I think Jake does it sometimes, right? But maybe I'm mixing up his twirling with his carling. <laughs> who does I don't carling know if I've come ever from? Had to judge it. Does it come from Carl from Florida? I don't know if he does it. Not that Carl, but a different Carl, I think, from way back in the day. Some other Carl who was like, well, I was a fan of Clock Encounter, but not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe to the community's credit, I it's pretty rare that I see Carl. I mean, I had to ask you to remind me what it meant. Um, cause I just, I don't see it very much. Okay. Okay. Three to go. All right. All right. Spray slick in 2023. <laughs> Invalid. <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay. So I'll shake everyone under the hood a little bit today. I'm probably too free willing today and making everybody mad. There's several situations in the freestyle world where we perceive there to be a debate, but then when I really think about it, I'm like, no, it's just Paul and Daniel. <laughs> it's Paul and Daniel <laughs> and everyone else in the world. And spray slick is one of these examples where I, I feel like when I'm explaining sex slick to people, I'm like, well, like most people use it, but some people still prefer the slick. But when I say some people, I really just mean Paul Kenny and Daniel Neal. Now, I actually think there are more people that prefer it than that. Cause I think like Dave, Dave Murphy, I sent him some slick, some sex, some, I'll call it real slick. Cause I hate saying sex slick. I sent him some real slick a couple years ago. And every time I go back to visit him, he's still using his spray slick. So I think he's <laughs> quietly decided he doesn't like the real slick as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, besides Daniel's actually the craziest outlier. Cause I think the only other people that really use spray slick are people that used it their entire life and never switched over to real slick. 
I'm being so unfair. This is like a lawyer tactic, right? To be like, I'm going to call the thing I prefer real slick because it lends it an air of credibility. Um, I also think, here's a little digression. Have you ever heard about how if you do taste test for Pepsi, it always beats Coca-Cola, but it's only because the first few sips of Pepsi taste better. But as you drink more, Coca-Cola is a more satisfying drink. Have you ever heard about this? No. So I think of it, I call it in my own head, the Brookstone effect. Do you remember the old store that was in malls called Brookstone? Yep. <laughs> and Brook, Brookstone was a store that just sold garbage that like overpriced garbage that people thought they wanted. So they would sell like really soft, fluffy pillows that in the store feel amazing, but they're junk or like gadgets <laughs> that seem really cool, but like don't work. So I always think about like what are deceptive products that your first impression of are really high, but long-term use is really low. Another example I think is like if you go into a really soft mattress, you're like, wow, this is so luxurious, but they're terrible to sleep in. Like if you, <laughs> if you just lay down on my mattress, you'd be like, this is a concrete block. Why would you would never buy it in the store? Cause it'd be so uncomfortable, but it's the best mattress to sleep on. I swear by it. But so I think <laughs> real slick sex slick, is the opposite of that. It seems really bad initially because it's so slick and you feel like you can't hold the disc and you can't throw it, that it turns a lot of people off. But if they committed to it and they used it for even a couple of weeks, they would reach the point where they're no longer hindered in any way by using it. Does that make sense? Maybe we'll rebrand it to Pro Slick. <laughs> pro Slick. <laughs> Yeah, because I think it's pretty common, especially when I play with older players that are kind of out of the loop and I show them my disc covered in pro slick and they just like touch it. And they're like, oh, gross. Like what's this is so slippery. I can't even they're always like, I can't even hold it. I can't I can't hold it. I can't catch this. But once you get the hang of it, you're never I've never I've never been like, oh, I would have caught that. But it had pro slick on it. Whoops. Maybe one out of a thousand <laughs> times that happens. But. In that thousand times, I caught a hundred more discs because I was using Pro Slick. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I still the think only... 2019 we would have won co-op if we used Pro Slick. There was one moment where, like, I <laughs> went to do a rim set, and just like 2002, the disc just completely aired out. Just got stuck. It just there was no lubricant whatsoever on the disc, and I just like it was the one I caught the chair, but I had that was my famous chair catch that you love so much. Like the whole combo before that got eviscerated because I ran out of spin immediately because there was no pro slick on the desk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I I won't even jam with spray slick anymore. It's just such a joke. Yeah. It's a relic of the past. I do think Daniel's moved to pro slick though, right? I feel like I was asking him about this in 2022 and he said, no, 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 I, I'm fine with it now. Am I right about that or am I wrong? Yeah, I've never had resistance from Daniel on Pro, Pro Slick. Yeah, the only time I remember having it was in 2019 when we were playing with Paul and they were teaming, oh, they were teaming <laughs> that up against me. That was a long me. time ago. Yeah. yeah, so I don't want to defame Daniel. He might have moved on. Well, he, We're going to have him on soon so he can he should put this down if he's listening. He should write this down on things he's going to address <laughs> when he comes on the podcast. He can stick up for himself. Okay. Another Daniel related one. 
natural using your natural nails to jam interesting i probably have another minority view about this so i was i when i was teaching can the new player i could hear very quickly that his nails were getting ripped to pieces you know that when you hear the disc just catching mm-hmm. the nail and i and i was actually kind of like that because i still in my broken whatever what are we gen z whatever gen we are millennial brain i'm still worried that people are going to be turned off by the nails so when i heard his nail catch i was like see now you know why we wear the nails because you're if you're a normal person your nails will get ripped to shreds if you freestyle like this so i try to pitch it as like you need this like it's not just a performance enhancer it's a your nails cannot survive the stress (laughs) you're going to put on them unless you're a freak like daniel or larry and you just have super strong nails um, so like I still teach people the delay without the nail because that's how I learned. And I'm, my theory is that if you use the fake nail, you'll start relying on rim delays a lot sooner than you should. And maybe you won't learn the delay, but I'm kind of thinking I'm wrong about that. Like Jake really strongly defends just giving people nails right away. And so I, I'm like, I'm on the fence about whether you should learn with or without nails. But I do say, no matter what, you get nails as soon as you're, as soon as you want them. Like if you want them, I'll give them to you. Okay, but now, but put that aside. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to digress too much into that. The real question is, pro players playing without nails. So we're gonna work through this in real time because I have this is another one. You're asking me a lot of emotional questions here. <laughs> so on the one hand, I play without nails all the time for a totally practical, lazy reason that I talked about in another podcast, which is I want to practice for. 20 minutes and I'm too lazy to put nails on. So I'll just play without nails. But with that said, I'm pretty strategic about what I do with the disc because I am very limited what I can do without fake nails. And part of that is because I think I have the weakest nails in the world. My non index finger nails are always ripped to pieces just from clawing the disc. Like even when <laughs> I have all my fingers supporting the disc and all I'm doing is flat moves my nails are constantly destroyed. So I have super fragile nails. They're always broken. They just, I cannot play without nails for more than five minutes without my nails breaking. I think for a long time, I had this deep respect for the Larry's and Daniels of the world for playing without nails. But now I'm like, why? Like, why, why do I care that you're not wearing nails? And so I'll ask that as a real question. Like, why should I care if you're not wearing nails? Oh, for me? Yeah. Like, why, why should I? <laughs> Maybe it seems more, maybe they're more attuned. Okay. So I was going to ask, should we all be going on? Like, you know how people go on retreats with no electronics, they like feel more attuned with their body. Should we be doing that? The same thing by playing without nails. So you like feel all the contours of the disc. Cause it is one more piece between your nerves and the plastic. Well, maybe this is a me problem. You know what I feel when I play without nails? I feel pain. I feel sharp pain. From Maybe you're my, going against the grain. We're all going with the grain. My, you just <laughs> haven't figured it out. My index finger will have six independent hangnails after five <laughs> minutes that are just shredding into the disc and pulling on all the delicate nerves. You know, they used to torture people by squeezing their fingers because your fingers have so many nerve endings. That's extremely painful. And that's how I feel when I play <laughs> nail. I'm just in I'm constant fear, constant pain. I'm always worried I'm going to rip my nail up. So, okay, I like that. Like, that is a good defense, though, that it is about having more feel, nerve endings. You're physically closer to the disc. 
and you can better understand what it's doing and how it's reacting. That is a perfectly reasonable justification as a learning tool. But I don't know if that changes my view about it as an act itself and how I should judge it. Because I think, and I was talking with Ken about this, a lot of freestyle is, the point is that it's hard. So on the one hand, you could say, (laughs) not wearing nails makes it harder. And so why isn't that like making something more restricted? You're making it harder, that's what makes it cool. Except in the instance of not wearing nails, it makes it harder while also bringing down all the available things that you can do. Like <laughs> it's harder <laughs> in a way that isn't better. Maybe is the best way to put it. So it's harder, but not better. So I'm not that excited by it. It's, it's unnecessarily hindering your ability to do it. It's almost like if you played with a blindfold, I'd be like, that's cool <laughs> as a gimmick, but the freestyle moves you're executing with your body aren't any cooler or like another way to put it is the silhouette Fabio Sana FPA commercial animation of what you're doing is not better because you're playing without nails. It's arguably and almost certainly a lot worse. You're also much more likely to make the jam a little bit worse because there's certain things that you're not going to be able to do quite as well because you don't have nails on. Right. Yep. So it's almost something selfish. I don't know. I, this is a new <laughs> thing. I if you asked me five years ago, I would have been very pro no nails, but then I kind of thought about it and I was like, isn't this just some elitist now I'm being too hard on it, but like I've, I'm making the argument stronger than I mean on my, one of my podcasts this is where the podcaster would say I'm making content here, even if I don't totally agree with <laughs> what I'm saying, but it's almost something like too elitist highfalutin about, Oh, I don't wear nails and that's really cool. Um, it's also a little bit unfair that I think the people who don't wear nails have naturally very strong nails for any number of reasons. Just how some people have thick hair and some people have thin hair. Some people have really thick nails <laughs> and some people have really thin nails. So good for you that your nails are really strong and you can do it. Um, and also say like, I'm not trying to diss anyone who doesn't wear nails, like whatever you they don't have to wear shoes. I don't care. You can help or hurt yourself however you want when you freestyle. But I, what I am trying to be more critical of is, what's the right word for it? Like celebrating or canonizing the beauty and power and majesty of playing without nails. Like I think it's totally Mm -hmm. fine as a choice to say, I don't want to wear nails for any number of reasons, but I don't think we should celebrate it as some higher, better form of freestyle. If that makes sense. Yep. Do you think there's any advantage of not wearing a nail? I mean, it's hard to say because most people train for so often and so long with a nail that it's unexplored. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty unexplored, but the I can ridge Im- delay. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Like the ridge delay maybe, or like tipping, but like most people tip with their middle finger anyways. Like even if I had a choice or if I, if nails were disallowed, mm-hmm. I would probably still tip with the middle finger. I mean, one thing that's interesting is just a matter of first principle is that nails ever became allowed because it makes perfect sense to me that, people were freestyling. The first people who started putting nails on, it was like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? Like it's cheating. That's not fair. Um, but I think freestyle is so hard as it is. Anything goes, <laughs> anything that makes freestyle. <laughs> so, okay. I was completely joking about this. So don't get me wrong, but I was at a baseball game yesterday and we were talking a little bit about steroids and baseball. And I said, you know, like, I think this is, I was 
wrong about this is I do think with Wift if there's rules about this, but I was just having a social conversation. It's like, you know, like there aren't really any rules against steroids and freestyle. And I've always wondered that kind of as a joke, like what if I just went on HGH for a year and like trained eight hours a day? Like I would be curious, like how much would it help me? And like, what would I get out of it? And what would it be like if I came to worlds next year and I was like 50 pounds of muscle heavier? Um, cause I do think there is this principle in freestyle that we're okay with anything that makes you better at it because it's so hard to do at all that everything is a positive. It's no, it's, have you ever heard of anyone being like, that's unfair, that's cheating because it's making it easier to freestyle. We're always like, how do I do that? What can I do to get this newfound (laughs) power? And I don't know, that's unique to freestyle. Like every other sport, if you found some way to get this huge advantage, people would be like, no, that's not fair. And maybe that's because those are adversarial sports and ours is a creative cooperative sport. Um, but I'm pro, I have a thing I'm that might break, okay. break the line, Go. but it's secret. Oh, oh it's secret. Yep. I've been we'll thinking see. about it, but I just haven't had time to build it. All my things that were secret advantages turned out to not be very good. Like my Delrin nails and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I'm pro, I think I'm pro nail. I will also say, I mean, I, I have Daniel needs to come on. He's coming on soon and he'll, he'll push back on this. When Daniel does wear nails, I'm like, you're even better. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> like you're, you're, there's a lot of times I'm like, wow, Daniel's a plane incredible today. And then I look, I'm like, oh, he's just wearing nails. Like, that's the only thing that's different. <laughs> he's got nails. Like, to be fair, he is the best player in the world without nails. There's no question about that. Like, I'll give him that. And it shocks me the things that he can do without nails. But when he does wear nails, I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's pretty sick. I mean, that's amazing that you can do that. Larry too. And I think Larry has actually started wearing nails more, more often than not when I see Larry now, he wears nails. Um, and obviously for him, like his whole claim to fame is brushing, rolling, kicking, and that's not really nail based, but Larry can do crazy pulls and turnovers (laughs) if he wears nails. So I don't know why you would deny yourself that ability on principle. Again, totally fine. If there's other reasons you don't wear nails, some people have the glue allergy, for me, it's a laziness. If you just like, I don't have any nails, I'm too lazy, I didn't bring them, fine. But like, I don't want to say it's a higher form to play with freestyle. Am I going to get crushed for this? I'm worried that I'm being too controversial here. <laughs> no, I think it's okay. Okay. That's okay. my views. We made it to the last one on the list. Okay. All right. So I wrote this before we started. But Wait, wait, real quick. So my final ruling, okay. playing without nails is valid but it's not better and it's not cooler and you don't need to do it and we don't need to celebrate <laughs> okay. it. It's not invalid. Oh, okay. It is valid. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to get okay. that, make that clear. Yeah. Okay. Last one, valid or invalid. You go to the restaurant and you order a Coke and the server says, how about Pepsi? That just happened to me at a restaurant. And, you know, I said yes because I'm an addict and I need <laughs> a brown carbonated substance to put into my body between the hours of nine and noon, but it's, it's invalid. It is <laughs> Pepsi is not the same as Coke. I'm glad it's come up twice. If Pepsi would like to sponsor us, I will change my view on Pepsi immediately, but I am pro Coke. I'm against Pepsi. And actually for the very first time in my life yesterday, I'm not making this up. If you, I'm, sh- I'm sure you have never encountered this before. I was at a, the, the party before the baseball game And there's a lot of Diet Pepsi around. And I was, you know, I asked, I said, you know, I'm curious, 
there's a lot of Diet Pepsi here and there's no Coke products. Were they out of Coke? And the friend is <laughs> like, oh, my wife, she prefers Diet Pepsi. And I asked, I then turned to his wife and I said, have you ever had a Diet Coke? I mean, what's, what happened? Like what went, <laughs> what went wrong? Who hurt you? Uh, Coke is a better product. And it's a shame that, you know, maybe Pepsi has to exist for U.S. antitrust law purposes, but otherwise it doesn't, we don't need it in the world. <laughs> it's like on Google Maps when you search for a route and it shows you a random route that takes 15 minutes longer. You're like, why is... Why does that exist? Why is it showing me that? It's just to make you feel better about your the, the golden path. I think it's worse. I think it's like when it says similar ETA and then you turn on it and then it adds five minutes to your 20 minute journey. And you're like, that's not a similar ETA. That's an ETA that's <laughs> 25% longer than my original journey. That's what I think of Pepsi. People are presenting it to you as a similar ETA. And then when you get it, you realize it's, it's not there. It's not right. <laughs> How's it going? Those were tough ones. That was way more... <laughs> challenging to make rulings on than i would have guessed i thought that was going to be easy peasy well it wouldn't be good content if it was all easy peasy the nail one really that one broke me that one was (laughs) that was hard i think i honestly it was almost a therapy session i think even i didn't realize until just today how much my views on nails had changed (laughs) and i I've learned something about myself today i don't even know if i like it you know one thing we don't talk about enough, there's a lot of things I say in this podcast that I believe, but I don't necessarily like that I believe it. <laughs> I, wish, <laughs> I, I wish I were zen, at peace with the world, and comfortable with all things, and welcoming of all styles and forms, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm not that person. I'm a grumpy curmudgeon who has solidified views about certain things, and it's like when someone makes you something for dinner that you don't like. And you're like, I wish I liked this. That would make it better. It would be nice. I, I wish I enjoyed salad. My life would be far better if I did. But unfortunately, whether from nature or nurture, I don't like salad. And I don't like that. My, I don't like, I don't like me either is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. okay. I've been eating a lot more salad lately. Okay. I'm close to needing to start. You know, it's going to happen like every basketball player reaches a point where they have to start eating well in order to perform. And I'm really close to that point. Um, I'd say, f- I think within the next five years, I will be eating proper food. I think you'll be retired by then. He'll be fine. Yeah. I think I need to be retired to have the time and power to prepare the right meals that I need to eat. We'll see. I'm hoping if you like charted out my life, like as my, physical abilities decline my nutritional abilities will help me maintain for a few more years and then (laughs) you know father time always catches up yeah okay cool well i guess that's the podcast right yep i'm I'm almost tired of saying like go to (laughs) clockercounter.com write us at you write us at clockercountergmail.com we haven't been getting as many emails lately Hopefully that doesn't mean we've lost all of our listeners. We should look at our analytics to make sure we're not shouting into the void. But if you're out there, send us an email, give us listener questions, give us more valid, invalid categories. We'd be happy to do those. And uh, let us know what you think about nails. Tell me, tell us we're wrong. I'm always game for that. And uh, if nothing else, we've given Daniel a lot to come back at us on when he joins the podcast for a few 
guest episodes. Um, okay, cool. So with that, we'll talk to you next time.